0: Hi, this is Jason Williams of McHenry and Williams Partnership that brought you the Axis Lock and many switchblades, and you are listening to the Bladeology Podcast.
1: All right, we're going to jump into it like we do every week. Welcome to another episode of the Bladeology Podcast. We are on with our original host lineup this week, and we are on with a guest. This is Jeremiah Burbank from PVK Vegas. Nick Chuprin of NCC Knives.
2: And Elijah Isham of Isham Blade Works. And Rainy Valentin. Rainy Valentin Custom Knives.
1: Awesome. Rainy, thank you so much for taking time to jump on here and and talk with us today. Uh, This is uh, pretty pumped for this one. I think we've got uh, a lot of a lot of history, a lot of questions, a lot of, a lot of information, that uh, that I'm hoping to go over. Uh, it's it's pretty uh, a pretty monumental uh, a family that that you're that you're coming from and and are a part of, and I'm looking forward to to going over it. So um, take us take it from the top. What uh, h- how did we get here? How did you get into knife making?
0: Well, I left California in '88. And headed up here to Oregon, where my dad had been living for quite a few years, and he was already making knives and hadn't really gotten really going, but he was moving along, Uh, moved up here, spent a year playing and working in the shop and making plywood at the same time, (laughs) Hmm. and then went full-time in 1991, and I've been doing it full-time ever since. Oh, wow. Wow.
1: Okay, and um, and just just in case for anybody who doesn't know, um,
0: who was your dad? Butch Valentin was my father. He passed away this year, May eleventh. No, May tenth. I take it back.
1: And and a a mighty loss that was for 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 everyone. Certainly, um, the Valentin family. Um, uh, very very make sad passing. Maker
0: for, make for forty eight years. Oof. And probably one of the industry's leading function and auto tech guys. So he, uh, you know, he started all the, the crazier stuff. And eventually I started the scarily stuff. And then he jumped on it after that. So.
1: Oh, okay. So that's that's a pretty good. Um, so, yeah. So, so Butch, obviously, well, yeah, it was super, super OG. I, I don't think too many people were. We're doing it exactly at the same time, or or they're doing it simultaneously without knowing. But but your dad was certainly a, a pioneer of of a, a few different mechanisms that now people sort of take for granted without knowing or, or, or otherwise. But um but yeah that's yeah well, yeah we're both exactly. Um but you made a differentiation between um the scale release and his or- original mechanism. Tell tell us a little bit about that.
0: Uh, His original mechanism was uh, in the chameleon at one time, one of the most popular mid techs you can get your fingers on. And uh, he was using uh, (laughs) quite literally stainless steel liners and a stainless steel tab and made a stainless steel lifter bar or teeter totter style lift. And uh, I turned that same mechanism into the scale release Uh, That was eventually released as a Sidewinder 2, and basically, instead of using the teeter-totter lift, I used a face ramp to another face ramp that were polished, and when you pivoted the scale, it lifted that tab. But I didn't. Titanium, I couldn't stand doing it. in Stainless. It was nice. It just wasn't as trustworthy. Wow. But we built 250 of them. Uh, and sold them all in about six months, and it took us almost a year to get them all completed. Oh wow! Okay.
1: All right. Well, let's uh let let's let's step back a little bit, and where does that where does that fall in the in the build timeline um, f- for you at the shop?
0: Uh, build timeline. Uh, I was into working in the in '91. I made the first scale release in '92, late '92. The chameleon was already going. Uh, all the way through, uh, beginning of 91 or late 91 into early 92. Um, and then I produced the first one and it was, <laughs> it was, uh, Damascus and Pearl and over the top kind of thing, something I'd never done. I just bailed into Damascus and Pearl to try it. It was rather scary to be honest. Hmm. And, uh, so I produced the first one of those and then, uh, People really love the action so I built the dress down version which was the sidewinder too and uh, you could take that to any any meeting hand it out everybody'd play with it, hand it back you'd fire it and everybody'd look at you really funny <laughs> and then hand it back and let it go around again before you had to show them how to make it work
1: It's just it's one of those things where it's the, it's the secret mechanism if, if you don't know then you just then you just don't know
0: Yeah and it's got a full backspring so you don't see any internals at all so nobody had a clue.
1: Right, yeah, you, could, you couldn't you could see that spring through the back. I mean, which is, nope. uh, it's an important part of the build, I would imagine, and just cosmetics, right, like you're saying, it's concealed.
0: Yeah, and at the time, everybody was trying to do more hidden mechanisms to keep the, well, at that time, everything was illegal no matter where you went except for just a couple of states. So at the time, I think there was 13 legal states for automatics, and those were limited. So everybody wanted the hidden release so that Everybody could have them. Nobody could know that they were autos until somebody showed them. Right.
1: So the, the 90s, like we're, we're, so we're talking about 91, 92. The, the late 90s, mid 90s were a hotbed for, for automatics. I mean, that was, uh, you know, that that was some of the glory days for, for some of this. Tell, tell us a little bit about that. I mean, the, the popularity-wise.
0: Well, it's interesting that we got Nick here because most of my money at one time came from just New York. I mean they basically kept me alive for eight or nine years because that was where all the money seemed to be. And certainly wasn't in Oregon. I can tell you that Um, California kicked in after a little while, but yeah, it was the, I mean, it was the heyday. Everybody was making custom autos and starting with, you know, Micartas and G10 and uh, titanium was rarer then than it is today. Uh, stainless, you know, the ATS and 440Cs were the popular steels, which are comparatively fairly old now. And uh, uh, we built, uh, can't tell you how many thousands of chameleons. And, you know, like I said, the Sidewinder was a limited edition, but we sold that really fast. But uh, I think within the first six months of making knives I was making sheath knives and then I went into I traded a rifle for my first auto and then uh it exploded uh, out of Eugene I had a show and uh I built a knife called the D&D and uh I went from having no sales to having almost 30 in in a weekend so that was uh 90 nine, 90 late I think that was early 93 in April at
2: Eugene. I've heard a lot of stories about that show. Were it used your to be customers, awesome. Were your customers, like mostly in New York, were they like all at shows or just like a lot of New York customers?
0: A lot of New York customers. And eventually they started flying into the Eugene show at by 95, uh-huh. the Eugene show. I was, my dad and I were bringing probably 60 or 70 customers to the show. Um, uh, from Texas, all the way to the to the East Coast Florida uh, lots of that's well-known great. makers even Reese Wyland mm-hmm. was
2: there. Mm-hmm. That's pretty awesome when you're bringing in customers that many at a time it was a uh, technically small show right
0: It was it was mm-hmm. it was actually the biggest show short of blade at one time. Oh, wow. that yeah.
1: yeah that's that's wild to have all those people come in just for you guys.
0: Yeah, well, we had some really unique customers. There were some really, really eclectic people, if you would. One was a, a millionaire who just loved mechanisms. I mean, he his favorite thing was air guns, uh, and then he started doing knives and got into knives, and uh, he eventually actually uh, loaned Tony of Microtech quite a chunk of change to, to get some stuff rolling, so... Hmm. He eventually became a pretty well-known customer between all of us, between my dad myself, Tony, uh, at the time, probably, uh, definitely Reese Weiland, um, and Mel Pardue. Just a huge list there.
1: Wow. Just a, a true a true patron, so to say.
0: Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And for a long time. Mm. Pretty sure I know what you're
3: talking about, I feel like Mel has told me stories about this guy.
0: Yeah, his name was John Carruth right um really good guy um big heart Mm -hmm. uh inherited uh, about 25 million in a trust fund and built it i mean he'd go buy a convenience store and turn it into a money maker and then sell the thing so smart guy
1: yeah i mean that's that's good to have someone like that uh Uh, On your side, so to say, you know, angel
2: investor. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And like I say, he was, he was part of the industry as a whole by then. Mm. I mean, you know, when you're, you're dumping a half a million into microtech and uh, others into other money, other monies into other pockets to, to help them out and obviously to make a profit, no offense or buts. There's no, no sense in blowing money that way, but, um, yeah, he, that was his thing and he enjoyed it.
1: Hmm. T- tell us a little bit about, um, tell us a little bit about the shop, uh, learning and and making knives with, with your dad. How, how was,
0: how was that? That's, uh, <laughs> so my pop was, uh, a mech guy. He really, really worked great on designing mechs. I mean, I think he slept and designed at the same time. Um, but he was not really the world's best teacher. You had to. You had to grow up with him to really understand what he was telling you, when he was telling you. Um, Most people that ever got a chance to learn under him kind of learned that the hard way. Uh, In fact, I'm still working with a guy that's trying to recover from it, but um, you know, he would go through and, and give you the basics and then he'd say, now do it this way. And then he'd do it and walk away. And so it was up to you to either jump in it or chicken out or, Take a shot at it and see what happened. Uh, from my very first knife, I still have it. Um, in uh, he said, "Well, here's what you want to do: draw something." So I drew something, and of course he fixed it because it was pretty raw, <laughs> pretty raw. And then uh, handed me some materials and said, "Here's what you do here, and put this together there, and we'll silver solder it when you're done." and uh I built my first hunting knife, and I still use it um a little four forty c drop point hunter and uh that was that was kind of my intro and then uh at the time bead blasted utility fighters and users were really popular so I was building uh hunters fighters kukris, um Boot knives. I was building anything at the time. They were all fixed blades. And then, uh, like I say, if somebody offered me a rifle if I'd build them an auto, <laughs> and uh, I jumped at it because I didn't have a rifle. So,
1: you know, you get, you,
0: yeah, you got to go for it. I got some nice rifles these days <laughs> from barter.
1: <laughs> is that still uh, is that still a common practice?
0: It is. I oh, just got okay. myself a beautiful little custom built AR for, uh, in a trade, uh, just prior to that was a gentleman out of, a matter of fact, New York, uh, a G- guy named Gabe Freed. And, uh, I traded a Ruger one falling block singles fire single shot rifle the rifle itself's worth about 1300 bucks. Uh, but I traded him a knife for that. And, uh, nice. uh it's a beautiful rifle. And he was, you know, he was trying to follow the state's laws as they decided that everything had to be registered. And so he was trying to get rid of anything he could that he didn't have to register. Oh. So uh, I picked it up, and I swore I'd never be a single-shot rifle guy, but I'll tell you what, that's my premier hunting rifle.
1: Oh, see, there you go. Try try something yep. new, fall in love with it.
0: Yeah, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And there's nothing like this little thing. It's amazing. Hmm.
1: So your, your dad... Uh... So, it sounds like work, working with family can always be, uh, it can often be tricky, uh, obviously. Um, oh, and then some. Right. Uh, but, so your, your dad over the years would, would design and, and build a count, countless knives and would teach or would help people to understand um, mechanisms in different ways. Uh, I mean, uh, is an apprentice, is that like a strong term? Did your dad ever
0: take on an apprentice? No, he never really had any apprentices per se. They were more of people wanting to learn something and they'd come in. Uh, I don't know if anybody's ever heard of a knife maker by the name of Al Faulkner, but he came in, um, for a little while, uh, not very a while, like a few days. And, uh, so he was there trying to learn something and and it's hard to teach somebody new methods of something they're comfortable in. Mm. Um, He was always willing to help the guys that were coming up, you know, give them a hand, talk them through something, sit down and write it on a napkin. Um, Somebody having a rough time with a function, they'd send it to him and he'd purify it a little bit and they'd get it back and see if they couldn't make it work for them. And, uh, um, you know, not many people know this, but the reason the Halo actually got out there is because my dad and Tony got together and my dad showed Tony how to do the retractor bar to pull the blade back into the handle. Otherwise, there might not have been a halo.
1: Hmm. I think, yeah, yeah I think maybe Diskin might have, he didn't He didn't tell us the whole story, but Diskin, I think, might have alluded to that. Because at one point, I know that they might have had a falling out, and they, they did get back together because I've seen a valet viper that had a retractor bar. And that was a single action uh, OTF.
0: Yep, that was the first. That was the first. Uh, the Vipers were my dad's premier OTF, uh, and he was in he was in the middle of designing and doing those when him and Tony met. Uh, that's how Tony and my dad got to be friends, as they met. And Tony was trying to get figure out how to get the blade in the handle. Dad showed him how to do
2: the retractor bar or the draw bar, and uh, it was history after that. You know, if you if you kind of sit down and think about it, that idea does not make any sense. Like, that would like to think of that is like kind of incredible.
0: Ah, yeah, and they're two very different systems. I mean, Tony's a hell of a machinist. I mean, there's not many many people out there that really sit down and put the small parts together like Tony does. Um, you know, he his sons are his sons are doing you know pretty much the same thing because they learned from their dad and God, they've been doing it since they were in
2: onesies. So <laughs> it's like when the, the, a group of people just get right and they, they get together and then something magical happens. Yeah.
0: Yeah. yeah. Well, at the time, Tony and uh, Susie, uh, let's well, just throw 32 years ago. Um, Tony and Susie were, were building knives out of their, uh, apartment. Um, and little Tony, which you know, as heretic, uh, who is not near as small as his dad, um, and his brother, Sean, um, and the other one, I never can remember his name. Um, they were all doing assembly of these knives in the living room of this same set apartment. Tony was grinding blades on the balcony. So pretty interesting pretty interesting story just with, with uh, Chase and Tony's information around on that one.
1: Yeah, so he he. How did you? How did what show did your dad and Tony meet up at? They must have been a show, right?
0: Uh, I think I think it was ninety two Blade when they first really met, but I think they met prior to that also at um, when the show was uh, the uh, Guild show was in uh, not Kissimmee but just out oh, in Florida. And not Miami. They moved it from Miami to over near Kissimmee, hmm. and then uh, I think Tony and him met then. That's where I got to meet Mel Pardue the first time. Was there in in uh, Florida, and that was, uh, God, I think that was late '91 as well.
1: Oh man, just just feels like just a couple of days ago.
0: Yeah, you ever want to sit down and get a story told to you that keep you in stitches the entire time? Sit and listen to one from Mel.
3: <laughs> He'll hurt you. Uh, I've sat with Mel for eight hours at a time before. It doesn't yeah. stop.
0: It would tell you the, the story about the finger. No, the finger was good. But I was talking about the the uh half bar of rouge that broke off.
3: No, nah, I don't think I heard that one. I heard when, when he chopped his finger off. But I was gonna yeah. say he's a very soft spoken guy, so you gotta really pay attention.
0: Yeah. Yeah, yeah, he did the finger one. with. I I almost did the same thing after I, or before I think every I got knife the story. Has. Yeah, and if you think about it, it's not really the brightest thing to do, and that's pretty much what he told me. He said, Don't ever do it that way. It's really dumb. <laughs> Basically, you're milling through a stack, so <laughs> it can get hairy there, you know,
1: if you're if you're uh safety precautions are are paramount for for well, sure. Well,
0: theoretically, what he was doing was the smart way of doing it. The only problem is when friction and steel get together, they can do some wild things. And that one shut the blade on that knife and his thumb was in between open and closed. So yeah, it was
3: his pinky finger. Pinky finger. Yeah,
0: that's right. It chopped the right yeah. at the knuckle.
3: Yep. Mm. I yep. saw him in, in super- USN last year, and he shows me every. He shows me the finger. He's like, "Hey, like, I think I'm starting to get gain feeling back in my finger. It's been like <laughs> ten years."
0: I'm like, "I'm like, goddamn, hell. He super glued that thing back on.
3: Yeah, he super glued it. Went to uh, passed out from the pain from the super glue heating up. Uh, and then went ran across the street to the doctor after the fact, so the doctor could check it out. He's like, yeah, "Stitches would have done the same thing." So there's no yeah.
2: need. Here's here's some antibiotics. I wasn't infected. Yeah. Didn't you say that he uh, when he was doing something, he went back in the house and the door slammed on it <laughs> <laughs> or something. Oh, I don't, like, I don't, don't know.
3: The whole story, it, it's like unless you hear it from the guy, it's like the yeah. hell. Like he was like, it, he hit his finger. It hurt so bad. He he clenched it in his other fist. He was afraid to look at it because there was blood everywhere. Looks at it, realizes the finger isn't there. Well, half the finger is gone. Finds it on the floor. Dips it in his grinder bucket, blows it off, and super glues it back on and passes out. Like, seems legit. You tell that to any normal person, they're like, What the fuck what is wrong with you?
0: Yep. And it had dirt and grit and mm.
2: uh, buff dust and mm. rouge
0: and everything on that finger when he blew it off. It's the mixture that keeps <laughs> yeah, it least, clean. Like, you know, that's get to the
2: sink and like rinse that thing off.
0: Oh, he did. Oh, he That's the one of the things he said. He says, I put it under cold water. He said, Don't yeah, ever okay. do that.
2: Yeah. Why? Is well, that like a no-no? Oh, the
0: stump, his finger, the yeah. he, the one that was still connected to him, he put under cold water.
2: Hmm.
0: Oh, wow. And he said, don't ever
2: do that. Oh, dear, and I've man. done it actually once. <laughs> I've always heard that you, you throw it on ice and you run to the hospital.
0: Yeah. Well, he was saying that he did it on a weekend, too. So he didn't really have. Yeah. Oh yeah. He yeah. said like the
3: hospital wasn't open or something. But and then after the he went to the doctor, lives across the street, uh, and he's like, "Oh, you." are But you said something just now. And I was like, "Yeah." Like I try to just not to keep my limbs on my body. Yeah, just
1: best to avoid the whole, <laughs> the
3: whole thing the entirely. Whole anyway,
0: it's a wake up call. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. No, the one that I was mentioning is he was loading up a brand new buff with buffing rouge on a brand new three pound block of rouge, and it broke. And when it did, it sent him to his midsection and basically threw him to the floor. <laughs> oh. And then I don't know if any of you guys ever met uh, Steve Garson, but uh, he went over to visit and Mel come to the door, kind of walking on his knees and his uh, fuzzies were sticking out the bottom and they were like grapefruits. So <laughs> oh <my God. laughs>
3: uh, he never told me that story. I gotta ask him about it next time.
0: Yeah. Ask him about know. the Rouge and the Buffer. Like-
3: I don't like the buffer much. I've almost killed myself a number of times. I've built full enclosure on my buffer these days, and I don't really buff full knives on that anymore.
0: Yeah, it's. We try and tell anybody that comes in to learn that that's truly and honestly probably the most deadliest machine in the shop, if you really think about it.
3: Yeah, like, like uh, so I was so a situation at you. Like, my father works with me. So every time he goes using the buffer, like, my, my butt cheeks clench. I'm like, oh my God, like, I have to take it to the hospital. The buffer and the porta man So both times he uses those things.
0: Uh, yeah, well, he's I've efficient. got bandsaw notches, but uh, yeah. No, my dad caught a blade tip one time. Uh, he took the mm. blade away, spun it around, and threw it back at him, and it went through a down oh, coat, man. a sweater, a thermal, a sweatshirt to get to him, and still went in over a half an inch. Oh, so, man. yeah, he so,
1: feathers wow, went everywhere. That's a sharp knife, though, huh? That's, that's ever, ever since that uh, <laughs> they, can,
2: they can throw the blade around. Jeez, yeah,
1: Rainey,
3: you, he you can probably, can probably throw it know, right best. back at you. You probably know the story well. Uh, that guy who designed the kiss knife for CRKT, yeah, he died a few years ago from that, from the buffer hitting from the buffer. Like he retired, was making knives as a hobby, and he was buffing a blade, and it was spun around and paled him in the heart. Whoa! Uh, yeah, he no, I didn't hear that. That's pretty wild. Like three or four years ago, he doesn't. He, he was making knives as a hobby because he's still getting paid out on the kiss knife. He's getting paid out for probably a pretty good penny for the kiss knife. Uh, and he was making knives as a hobby, and they caught the buffer and spun around and impaled him. Wow. Yeah, that was... Uh, after that, I every time I got up to my buffer, because at that time, I was making kitchen knives. So I was actually buffing full-on kitchen knives. Every time I get up to that buffer, I'll be like, uh, this doesn't look safe. I'm yeah. It anyway. And a,
0: <laughs> and a nice thin fillet would go really deep. <laughs> mm-hmm. Doesn't matter if it's sharp or not. No. No, no, no. No, I've got guys that got stitches in the palm of their hands from the backside of, you know, hunter blades that are not
2: even, they're not even fault edged, you know,
0: uh, yeah, from an auto. A thin
2: enough edge on there it's going to so still cut you.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I got a kitchen knife I built not too long ago and I slid off the tip of it and it laid me open just sliding over the tip.
2: Hmm. Knife making is fun, guys. That's anyway. right. You got you, yeah. you
1: gotta keep your senses keep your senses about you at all all times. It's very important.
0: Always a little blood in your product.
1: Yeah. Um. So so rainy. Uh, building knives in the shop, and you you're you're building knives with Butch, and it's uh you're in the heyday of of automatics. You're in the you're in the later nineties. Um, what was the process for? I mean, so you have this original Butch mechanism that that he basically he taught you and he kind of passed on the knowledge to you. Is it is it the same mechanism that you're still using today? Is it is it modified? I mean, it's your it's your family's mechanism, so to say.
0: No, it's actually an original Italian style action. Um, The difference is. The differences are that we don't hold the blade down. We hold the spring down. That's why we can do double action. You're not retaining the blade. You're retaining the spring's power. Um, so then you can work it you know, with or without the automatic function. Um, but it, for the most part, instead of doing the original Italian mechanism, and there's a bunch of those, but the primary was a bent up piece of steel um, where you push down in the middle and it would – you know, pick the tab up and pull it out of the blade, out of the hole in the blade, and release the blade. And um, what we did is we changed that. We tipped the angle a little bit for the sear to function in, Drop the sear into the liner itself instead of sitting on top so you could make the knife thinner. Um, and then you could also reduce the button thickness. Uh, that's why none of my knives have safeties because you have to hit a corner of something to push the button still. Um, cause it's flush with the surface of the handle. Um, and then when you, you know, back then we'd pick up the, the spring and we learned a lot from that as well. We, we built our own springs. We didn't buy them. We, we cut them out of ATS 34 and went through the processes to turn them into springs. But, uh, the Sears that I use today or build today, matter of fact, I finished one this, this morning are almost as alien as the ones that I started with, um, I've learned a lot from a lot of input from a lot of people. Uh, a guy out of Russia, uh, I built a knife for, and, you know, I sent it to him, and he loved it, except it was not, quote-unquote, it was not a Swiss watch. I told him, I said, we don't make Swiss watches in America. We make hot rods, dude. <laughs> I'm like, yeah, like, have you seen, like, the core? Yeah. Thing? We make hot rods. So... Um, I took his advice and I put a little bit of effort into it and I don't still make, I still make the hot rod. Cause that's what I like, but it's a lot smoother, a lot cleaner functioning hot rod. So that's basically where I went with that. Uh, and it's always somebody's input here or there. Um, you know, uh, blade show 94, I was sitting by myself. Uh, I don't know if all you've been to the blade show, but, that big giant pit in the middle of the hotel there, you know, I've sold more knives in that pit than I have at the tables ever. Um, But uh, I was sitting at a table by myself, enjoying a drink. And behind me was Bill McHenry, Daryl Ralph, Al Sandin, uh, God, uh, Al Sanders, a couple others. uh, Oh, uh, Jerry Rados as well. And they were talking about me, and I was sitting literally back-to-back back with Jerry. Jerry didn't know I was there. They didn't know I was there. And one of them, and I'll, I'll not mention who, said, you know, the guy makes a really great knife, and it, his fit and finish is is beautiful, but he'll never be an artist. And uh, I kind of perked my ears up, and I went, hmm, I wonder why that is. And uh, so at the same show, I went and talked to Daryl Ralph the next day, which was the short day, Sunday. And I said, Hey, I see you're doing some file work. What do I, what do I need to do to do some file work? So I started from Daryl Ralph's assistance because he was my steel maker at the time as well. Uh, learning how to do file work. Um, not so much learning from him, but taking his advice and, and for all intents and purposes, he said, grab a file, grab a piece of steel or titanium and start, you know, just creating characters and see what happens and so that's that was where the world changed in mine my area between dad and i was i started doing the artwork and the fun, fit and finish and he was still doing the fit and finish but he was doing the fit and finish and the crazy functions hmm. Okay. so yeah so and then i started teaching my dad the artwork just a few years after that hmm. and so it was it eventually it came full circle but uh Yeah, he he's still the king. Was the king of the functions at the time, which which
1: is wild because you guys were doing this all decades before any kind of modern CNC equipment. I mean, this is all original, just completely handmade, hand fit and finished switchblades.
0: Yeah, right up until the Sidewinder. Um, The Sidewinder was my experiment on trying to do what the world didn't have, which was a concealed release. And do it in a big enough number to make it really, you know, make some money. And so we, dad and I went through some processes and came up with some ideas on, you know, get a water cut, get a water saw guy and have him cut all the parts, then bring all those parts in. And then just start working through each and every step on a prototype to figure out how to trim it down in time, energy, effort, Uh, and how to make it exact and Iraq, uh, exact and the tolerance is really tight. And, uh, at that point we started kicking out mid, mid techs and, uh, uh, dad started doing, well, he did the V and D over later in, well, early, early to mid two thousands, uh, like 2003 with, uh, Matt Diskin, as a matter of fact, um, and then he did quite a few of those odds and ends prior to that, but that's you know that's in the heyday. It was it was crazy. I mean, it was literally I had a five year waiting list at one time.
1: Oh man, okay. Yeah. I mean that's that's a that's a good problem to have. On the other hand,
0: it is, but and that's a full custom. You know, you're talking. It, it, they're not crazy customs. You know, when you're out talking about most of those were my carta handles titanium liners stainless backsprings and blades and double action
1: hmm wow okay so I mean my carta and all those all those synthetics I mean you you were you've been doing this long enough to see those sort of ebb and flow in in and out of popularity and existence
0: oh yeah yeah I still have a little bit of uh of the old Westinghouse my carta I break out and do a couple of pieces here and there with and to Put it away after that.
1: There you go. Just, just skim a little bit off the cheese block. Put it, put yeah, it back in the fridge.
0: I had sheets of it. Uh, matter of fact, I worked out a deal uh, with, again, another gentleman in New York. Hmm? Uh, we, his nickname is RCH. Um, and uh, he had six sheets of micarta ranging from quarter inch to three eighths, straight white, uh, the old paper. Uh, white with blue line, white with black line, white with two blue lines and two black lines. So I traded into a bunch of that. As a matter of fact, if you ever run across any of those Micarta Vipers, that was my Micarta my dad glommed onto. <laughs> oh, okay. All right. Yeah, he, he, he got a hold of an entire sheet and sent it off to the water saw. Never even asked.
1: <laughs> he was like, you know what? This looks great. I'm just going to borrow this real quick. <laughs> yeah. I'm
0: going to snag this. Yep. He cut quite a few of those out. Wow,
1: I mean, it's, was, it's I crazy. can't imagine what that
0: she's worth today.
1: Uh, probably a lot. A few rifles at the very least. At the I would very imagine. least, yeah. a few nice
0: ARs. Yeah.
1: Yeah. There you go. There you go. Um, so you so you moved from California. You moved up to Oregon. You're working with your dad. Things are things are going great. So we're. We're later on into two thousands. I mean, you've got waiting lists. Tell us a little bit about um, tell us a little bit about the show circuit. Uh, how how did that sort of? I mean, you've been going to blade show
0: for how many years? Twenty nine. Wow. Dad and I have done twenty nine blade shows. Uh, I missed three. He missed three. But one of us was
2: always there. How many blade shows have there been? Like
0: Thirty. 30. 30 or 30 35. Two, oh, no. So wait yeah. Man. It was
2: the 35th anniversary a couple years ago. So, yeah, and for Atlanta. Yeah. First yeah.
0: time we ever went was, uh, oh, God, it was 90. 90? Wow. Yeah. Wow. I talked my dad into going. I talked my dad and mom into going. Uh, and they didn't want to do it. And uh, we went to the show the first time that year and I absolutely had a ball. But, uh, uh <laughs> Those moments when you walk up to somebody's table and don't know who you're talking to and start critiquing their knives and not really realizing, you know, you're Johnny come lately and they've been at it for a long time moments. One of those, I got one of those with me, uh, Judy Gottage, as a matter of fact. Oh, there you go. <laughs> okay. All right. Yeah. Stuck my foot in that one. But yeah, got them to go to the show. A guy flew in, as a matter of fact, flew in from New York, landed, got a taxi, came straight to the I would probably say a limo, but came straight to the show, bought two knives. One was mine, and um, I think the other one was Ralph Dewey Harris. Oh, shoot. And uh, Jumped back in his limo, jumped back in the airplane and went home. I never saw the guy again. Hmm. Blew my mind.
2: Wow. That's uh, Some people know what they want. and they go and get it, I guess.
0: He went through that show, not quite a dead run. I don't think he had much time on the ground, but he hit and he got to the show, and literally, you could see, you could pick him out of the crowd because he was just zipping back and forth. And he hmm. stopped at our table and visited with, with us for about, I don't know, 10, 15 minutes, picked up a little uh, coffin dagger that I did, um, and then hit Ralph Dewey Harris for an out the front fork, as a right. matter of fact, and uh, jumped on
2: the plane and went back home. I, like I said, I and never saw the, the guy front again. Fork. Yeah, that's that's i to need one of those.
1: That's a maker oh. that really uh, I see his work around, and I'm I'm always it's it's amazing work. Uh, you
0: know, the the fun part with the fork thing is is somebody had tattled on him because he actually did out the front knives, and this is this is more or less in front of Tony and my dad, um, as far as time frame of getting all the you know bugs worked out, and he built a knife every eight hours. Ralph Dewey was uh oh, wow. pretty impressive. But um he got tattled out that he was doing out the front knives at the show. Not that they were illegal or not, but I guess everybody thought they were. So they went to bust him and he said, Sure. And he handed him handed the, the officer one of the out the front forks. That's awesome. Yeah, and they all walked away shaking their heads and he was still selling out the front knives. <laughs> wow.
1: So yeah. Matt was telling oh. me that um, so a lot of that engraving work that is on those knives is that that's Ralph's own engraving. Is that true?
0: Yeah. Wow. Yeah, he he would build a knife from zero to finish as far as fully functioning and and ready to get any embellishments, but it was a completed piece in eight hours. He had it mapped to the minute. I mean, the guy was. Who was the, the guy? Was crazy. Guy
2: that's crazy. That's Ralph uh, Dewey
0: Harris. Yeah. Ralph yeah we lost him a few years ago but uh yeah nobody i don't think anybody on the planet builds a knife as fast as he does and can call it an out the front uh and in I've and out out the it. front as a matter of fact a double action
1: yeah the double action was crazy hmm. his yep. pieces show up once in a while they usually they sell out really quick and they've got a pretty reasonable resale value um I think he's a maker that really ha- has unfortunately everyone who has a knife just holds on to it and and he doesn't he doesn't get a lot of um a lot of play so to say but the, the knives are intensely nice very very nice
0: they were good quality they were clean they were fast they hit hard um and they were they were you know the fit and finish was good and clean and like i say this was kind of out in front of tony and microtech and my dad at the time frame hmm. but but uh really the
2: the launch of the Halo and, and the Viper were the two things that really kicked the out the front off. Right. To me, uh, with an OTF, like as soon as I learned about them, I was like, oh, well, it seems like the goal would be to, well, in some applications, to uh, get the blade to fire as hard and as fast as possible. Yeah. Or is that not the case?
0: No, as far as I'm concerned, that's mm-hmm. uh, that's the whole intent behind them. Well, at, at least on a, a single action. yeah and the single actions it was well that's the difference between the single and the double the the double you can actually hit the palm of your hand if it's not Tony making the tip and sharpening it it won't punch through you but the Mm. out the fronts the single actions have enough power to penetrate your hand I've got three scars almost in a row from one of my dad's OTFs that I was trying to fix and it hit in the very bottom just where your wrist and your you know the palm of your hand starts so that's really tough and uh, there's a bone mm-hmm. under there well I got three scars side by side that are from the very same knife me trying to fix it and that's when I gave up but it each one of those is probably a quarter inch wide and that's mm-hmm. a very fine tip so if it gives you an idea of how deep it's got to go to make a quarter inch wedge
2: oh yeah Yeah.
1: yeah those those yeah, anybody- viper daggers are those are pointy very pointy
2: mm-hmm. yeah has anyone ever uh, come up with or is it just like a dumb idea to like put a rubber boot or like a rubber sleeve over the front, so uh, crud and stuff doesn't get in there more. So the uh, you know, kinda... I think
0: at one time Tony had a little rubber cap that you could put over there. Not put mm-hmm. over; it was like a plug. Um, yeah. Really early on, uh, yeah, the... but I think that's about as good as it got, and that went away yeah. pretty quick. The
1: Navy like Scarab came type. with um, the Navy Scarab came with a little uh, rubber cap that would <laughs> click over the top of it. Um, Interesting. And that was, that was sort of a, that was pretty novel, um, at the, at the time. Uh, uh, Paul Panak, Burn Knives, has made one or two trap doors, so it's a spring-loaded cover on top of the OTF, so when you fire it, it, it pops out just in the nick of time, and then the blade shoots out, but you have to manually reset it. It's kind of neat. I mean, it's not water type by any means, but it's mostly cosmetic. No. Yeah, I would
0: say. I would say I've not seen any of those.
2: Uh, uh we're talking about the, the ones with the swivel over, or, or no, we're talking about something else.
0: Sorry, I think else. it's a trap door yeah. with a where the mm-hmm. door actually goes over the end to cover up the yeah. hole.
2: Mm-hmm. So I when you push the trap
0: that. door down, it opens it up so the blade comes out.
1: Yeah, it's, a, it's a neat design. Um, so keeps, we're, we're at Blade Show, um, you're there with your dad. We've got Ralph Dewey Harris making OTFs. Um, how was how was Blade Show with with, with Butch? I mean, uh, you guys like partied up or what? Like all night talking with makers and and sharing ideas.
0: Um, you know, it, my dad was never the uh, social party kind of guy. Um, we did have some pretty interesting evenings uh, in the hotel in the main hotel. We'd get together and uh, I think we had fourteen or fifteen people in. The room one evening, uh, and at the time, like I say, we were you know, Bill Sandin, uh, Al Sanders, Bill McHenry, Jason Williams, uh, Ray Ray, uh, Ray Johnston from Ray Ray and BJ's Knives, um, and another character. I I can't remember this guy's name, everybody knows him. I never can remember his name. He's a, he's uh, he suffers from MS, uh, but not you know, not to the, to a real extreme. And he's a comedian and he loves knives and he does knives. I'm trying to remember his name. Anyway, he was there, um, just a huge tassel of custom makers. And, um, we had knives going everywhere. Everybody had knives. So there was probably 40 or 50 knives floating around the room from everybody. And, uh, I got to pick up a Bill Sandin piece, beautiful coffin dagger, um, probably one of the most amazing pieces of artwork I've ever held in my hand that was literally built by one guy. And, um, his only problem with the knife is it didn't want to close. You had to really force it, you know, pack it in, uh, like push the blade in really hard. And the blade back was really thin. It wasn't double edged by any stretch, but, uh, you'd put a notch across your fingers and so Bill McHenry and I were arguing back and forth on what was going on. And uh, I eventually, I told Bill, I said, uh, well, I told Bill Sanden, uh, that I think he was, he had a stacking problem, uh, which means there was not enough room for blade, back spring and kick spring. He was short just a few thousands and um, he fixed it. And that, that was not only what it was, but uh, Bill McHenry and I sat and talked about that for for hours that evening, and uh, just a I couldn't it, you couldn't put that much talent in one room and sit and have you know ten different conversations all going at the same time. Yeah, pretty I mean, amazing.
1: I was gonna say we um we so we just recently uh, interviewed um, Jason. Um, unfortunately, I would I would have loved to talk to Bill before he passed, but. Um, but he, he was mentioning a a time with, with you, um, in a hotel room with knives and, and with Bill. So that must've been one of, one of the many times now, I mean, I just figure this to be true, but all the switchblade guys just hang out with each other at all the shows because there's so few of you and it's just the cool kids, right?
0: Well, originally there was, there was a lot of us. Um, in fact, at one time it would be, you know, you'd go down to the, the pit bar and, and you could pick up, you know, most of the knives from just virtually any any of the automakers there. Hmm. Um, and then, you know, for us, we'd walk in there, and there'd be anywhere between five and ten different dealers ready to ready to do business uh, on Thursday night. Oh yeah, not even with the show starting. Uh, I can't tell you how many years I'd sold out Thursday night, sitting in the pit <laughs> bar, and walked around with my thumb up my tail because I didn't have anything else to do but either sit and design or go to dinner with people or. Um, when my dad passed, I picked up. Uh, I found a a menu. Uh, I think it was 2000, 2005 or two thousand six. Anyway, it was. Uh, I don't know if anybody remembers that restaurant that's sitting in that same bar area. It's a really Magici? nice little high end. I don't, know, I don't know. It's a really high end little restaurant uh, next mm-hmm. to the bar. Yeah, in the pit. I'm familiar. Yeah, in the pit yeah, yeah. back. Yeah, yeah, to the right of the escalators. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, Maybe or something like that. Something like that. Yeah. So, I actually have one of the menus from that night where John Caruth, the gentleman we were talking about earlier, booked the whole restaurant for the night. And it was in tribute to my pop at the time. Um, I'll have to get it and read it to you, Jeremiah, sometime or get you a copy of it. Maybe i, be I posted awesome. it online. But it, you know, it says, you know, in honor of Butch Vallotton, Um this night will be dedicated to him. Thank you all that come. And then the menu. And it was it's it was pretty wild. But uh, yeah, that was another night. And uh, I think every and any um, automaker and the, some of the top steel makers, uh, Devin Thomas at the time, daryl ralph for that matter i don't know if anybody knows it but daryl ralph used to make some great steel um and uh a bunch of others including jason i think jason and and bill were both there as well there was probably 35 or 40 of us there and uh we had an amazing dinner great night probably five or six hours sitting in a restaurant not that i do that very often i hate that but but it was a ball and uh that gentleman that put this up picked up the tab. The only thing he said is you have to buy your own alcohol, I'll pay for the rest. Wow. I can't imagine what that bill was like. I mean. For how many people? Jesus. Thirty-five or forty of us. And I had I had steak and lobster. And I asked if I could have <laughs> it. <laughs> yeah. You know, uh, you know, John, you mind if I get steak and lobster? And he's like, Oh, that ah, reminds me. <laughs> that reminds have me what you want.
2: One. Yeah. last Blade Show. That one guy was like minus us all drinks and Mark's like, What's the most expensive shit you oh. have? <laughs>
0: uh, yeah,
2: that
3: yeah, guy sent us to the table is like, uh that guy would like to buy you guys a, uh will buy you like, would like to buy you a drink, like to Mark. He goes, What's the most expensive thing you have? He orders it and goes, Nick, do you want one too? I'm like, uh, sure. <laughs> Elijah, he just got all the whole table.
1: I was like, Huh. Is that how you do that? Yeah. <laughs> I mean sometimes, yeah,
0: sometimes. Yeah, then you gotta suffer through it even if it sucks though.
1: <laughs> damn that too. <laughs> sometimes you just gotta go with it. People feel good about treating other people to dinner sometimes. You know, that's just part of the that's part yeah. of the deal.
2: Yeah. Tony took us all to dinner one night and he said, uh, if you leave the table hungry, it's your own damn fault. Ah, yeah, that's a that's a thing that just happens, I think, with uh if you're in the industry yep. long enough. You just get Yep. Everybody they had to roll me to the car, dogs. man.
0: I was full. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you did I it right a, then.
1: That's the oh, idea. Oh, I made a
0: porker of myself. I had a giant steak. Oh, it was terrible. <laughs> I, I can mean, remember that's, the taste of it even.
1: That's great of him to to put that on in in honor of in honor of Butch. I mean, that's a true that that's a tribute. You know, that's that fit, wild. You know,
0: and it, yeah, it was. And it's it's not a cheap dinner, but it was just it was the thought and from that guy. It was always kind of. Top shelf kind of thing, you know, wonderful guy. I, I got to, I did a, he, he came to the last show that I saw him at and, um, he ordered a knife and then I didn't hear from him for a really long time, like a couple of years even. And one night, uh, just before I walked out of the shop, I got this phone call late and he's just outside of Dallas. And, uh, he says, you know, it seems like you have a deposit of mine. And I said, Hey, John, <laughs> I can send you back the deposit. He says, no, you know, I'd rather have the knife. I said, all right. So I'll jump on it. So I finally hear from him and now I'm, you know, I'm, I could either get it out or look like a Turk. So I built the knife and uh, sent him the bill with the knife. I didn't even, I didn't even tell him, you know, Hey, I'm shipping it. Uh, you know, this is the bill I'll ship it when you, when you pay the bill kind of thing. It was like, I'll send it to you, man. You send me money when you're ready. Uh, Mostly because I felt guilty. But uh, so I hit him. It was a $950 knife. I sent him a $750 bill. Uh, He got the knife, gave me a call, told me it was beautiful, sent the check. I got a $950 check back. Called him up and I said, Hey, John, what's going on, man? You overpaid me. He says, Oh, no, I didn't. Uh, Oh, no, (laughs) I I didn't. Thank you. I can I can I can go with that.
1: <laughs> yeah, I mean sometimes right. There you go. A, a little extra forward for for good work done and and excellence paid. That works. Yeah,
0: and I spent, you know, I spent the time. I did some extra stuff on it, you know. Like I said it was late. I felt guilty um and he was just a really great guy almost all my career. So, I don't think I've talked to him but twice since, but and I haven't talked to him in probably 7 years now. So but, uh, yeah, just one of those guys that was always in the background, um, you know, always doing little things, pushing people, you know, find somebody he likes and invest a little time and energy in.
1: Yeah. I mean, no, that's that's absolutely, absolutely excellent. Uh, and, and you know, OK, as a, as a segue of, of, of treating people and, and good dinners. Um, do you remember SwitchCon is that, is, that, is that something that rings a bell?
0: Yeah.
2: Yeah, that was... <laughs> yeah. What is this? I have no idea. Uh, Jared was, SwitchCon. There was a lot
0: of stuff going on at the time. The industry was really, really a hopping thing at the time. I mean, the automatic industry was just nuts. And um, we were all at a dinner one night, and they were talking about this SwitchCon thing, and... and at the time, there was the newsletter out of San Francisco that was pushing all the, the stuff out of California. Um, there was just so much press, and, and it was everywhere. So the dinner was a, quite a chunk of people. And um, what was supposed to turn into Switchblade magazine actually ended that same evening um, with, with the onset of Switchcon. <laughs> too many characters too many great personalities clashed and uh it was kind of a tragedy but you know cooks it's gonna kids. happen sometime yeah
2: you hear that jeremiah it's gonna happen
0: it's gonna happen at sometime um well it was it was funny because some of the brightest and best are still working and some of those that were really button heads are gone so
2: oh so it's even easier now there we go yeah <laughs> it needs to happen i, th- I think i mean one, one way looking the at most it sense at all like give switchblades their own show
0: yeah well you know, that was the key it was supposed to be you know the onset of a switchblade magazine it literally was going to be called switchblade magazine and mm-hmm. uh it was uh john caruth gonna bring up and and foot the bill for the whole thing and all the makers and everybody where just going to do editorials and, you know, write-ups here and there. And then next thing you know, well, somebody can't be in it because, and somebody else can't be in it because, and I'm like, wait a minute, <laughs> that's not a test decide. And then who the hell do we think we are to tell people who they can and can't be in the magazine? I mean, you know, if it's, if they make switchblades, mm-hmm. they should be entitled to be in the magazine. Why, why so would we go- was, call
2: it switchblade magazine? Yeah. There was definitely some old guard there.
0: Oh, it things. was things. <laughs> it, got, it got heated And then eventually, a couple years later It even got worse between a couple of the people That had the argument that evening So, mm-hmm. you know, but It's it's just part of the game You know, when you get social like that Get too many personalities And get a lot of, you know, people thinking they're Better or You know, above the others Then that's what you kind of get But, yeah. I it, don't know, you made for an interesting evening though <laughs> There you go
1: <laughs> I mean it's it wasn't boring, right?
0: No, it wasn't boring I just you know the only problem for me is I don't mind sticking up for people i just I just don't like people telling others who can and cannot be who sure. belong
1: yeah the the newsletter um is that the newsletter as in the original uh, newsletter or is that the sheldon
0: Sheldon levy made a little newsletter it was uh switchblade news and it was out of san francisco it was just a little you know uh basement press kind of thing uh i think there were 28 originally issues hmm. um there's a gentleman that's actually trying to revive it yeah um, walt right yeah yeah if i get off my butt and do some writing uh, my wife needs me to do some writing and and uh walt needs me to do some writing i'm supposed to bring some of this back but Life's been rather rough the last couple of years, so I haven't really gotten around to doing much. So, as far as that kind of stuff goes, hmm. but uh, I'd love to do it. Just
1: yeah, I, I ran into him uh, two Blade shows ago, and he had the the newsletter was all printed up in color, and I was like, "Whoa!" I was like, "Okay," because it was always obviously it was always black and white before, and he was real excited about reprinting it in color and all the old ads and everything. So it's kind of far out.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah it was uh and it wasn't even white paper it was a yellowish paper
1: yeah yeah no no joke we actually still have i was cleaning out the shop in Vegas and i found a, wh- a whole stack of them like original issue newsletters that have um pvk ads in them from you know whatever turn of the 96 or 98 but um
0: that was in the blade auction days
1: yeah it absolutely yeah. was yep, yep. Yeah. yeah that was
2: god i missed that that's yeah. a good segue let's talk about that
1: yeah do you want to talk about blade auction
0: a little bit yeah uh, <laughs> my only my only complaint sure. with blade auction was the fact that it disappeared so, yeah. Yeah, sure, i know why Nobody it did but you know <laughs> right? i know why it did it's just it's just it sucked that it did and there was tons of people on that thing
1: mm. yeah that definitely it, it at a time and place it was uh yeah, I mean it. It was a the newest and coolest thing, and it was really it was moving a lot of knives. Is what it was. it
0: was. It was quite literally the knife moving leader at the time, as far as, you know, you could you could just jump on there and go hunting.
2: It was amazing. Yeah. So it was like a forum, or
1: well, no, it was an it was an auction site uh, for knives, and um, basically anybody you know, it's straightforward. Anybody can list something on there, and anybody can buy something. Um, of, a, of almost any caliber knife, but at the time that that existed, there wasn't anything even close close to it or, or anything like that available to people who were looking for for knives. I mean, it was before Arizona, it was before a lot of that stuff. Um, oh, yeah. And it, you know a lot of a lot of makers ended up um, interacting with that site selling things buying things and then um, in a couple of cases I've talked to people and that sort of that inspired them to get into knife making because they sort of started selling um, customized production knives on blade auction and that that got them into full-time custom making
2: so like a genesis of like knife pimping as I guess you could say
0: well it, it launched even uh, white wolf knives uh, right you know it was their their takeoff I mean uh, uh, I, you know, it's funny, when I met um, the guys that had Arizona, that was K- uh, Jer- uh, Jay and Karen Sato out of Scottsdale, Arizona, they came to the Bla- uh, Vegas Classic, and at the time they were doing, you know, very just machine stuff, and they were, you know, it was from low end to, I think it maxed out at about 300 bucks and they hmm. were, they were doing good business. Uh, but then I met them there and got them selling 450 to 550 higher end custom, you know, still beat blast and and black micarta and bolsters and stuff and titanium. But that's where they got their big start was there at that show. And that's also the same show. They sold the thing, the, the knife the, the company, hmm. uh, to, uh, Julie. Julie Hyman, uh, which is now what? Julie McKenzie?
1: Oh, I think so. I she, she got
0: married
3: a few years back.
1: Yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah. But uh, yeah. Uh, and then uh, not, uh, God, I never can remember. a uh, Protech our boy at Pro Oh, Dave. Dave Wattenberg. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He was my customer for, God, a great many years. And then he came up with ProTech, and the godfather and the godson were his launching point. I don't know if anybody ever seen one of my ice picks and one of the godfathers and godsons <laughs> next to each other, but uh, they look Just really, similar. Just really similar. Really similar. <laughs> <laughs> I, no, got, I, I yeah. got him to cop onto that one a while back at a, one of the Florida shows. Yeah, uh, it was kind of fun.
1: <laughs> yeah, we we all we all love Dave, um, but certainly some some of those designs um, they look they look like sometimes other things from from the past from long ago.
0: Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, I uh, asked him yeah. about it. Hey, you know that looks really familiar. He said, yeah, it, it might. Yeah, it, it
1: does similar it design might. language. You know.
0: Yeah, he picked up two show two knives for me at that show. One of them was the ice pick. Uh, one ice pick. And uh, another one was a brand new one I was doing at the time, little Lance. So I think I made him feel guilty.
1: <laughs> Sharp and pointy—that's how—that's how he likes him over there with the oh, bayonet yeah. blade. Yeah,
0: yeah. I did a knife for him a, a long time ago. He was supposed to produce, but he ended up—I I caught him right in the middle of his move. So I'm not even sure he knows what things at.
1: <laughs> hmm. Yeah. Some. Some. I've I've talked to him about some prototypes he's he's got uh, at the shop. So I bet you that's. I bet that might be one of them.
0: Um, it might be. It, it's a completed little scale release, but it's you know. I, and I asked him at the time. I said, I you know you know, I, I don't know what you're asking for. I don't <laughs> know if you want me to do a dagger or if you're looking for, you know, something else. And he said, eh, I'm looking for something else, which I thought was weird because at the time that was just all I ever did was daggers. Hmm. And uh, um, so I kind of went off the off the off the, the rails and did a. Uh, kind of a unique one and got it to him and he's like, huh, that's interesting. I thought, uh oh. Oh boy. <laughs> oh boy. That's definitely didn't twang a cord there. Hmm.
1: Yeah, well, you know, sometimes you just gotta you gotta shuffle it up. You gotta you gotta you gotta try something different. Uh um, yeah, I've produced uh-oh. it a
0: few times elsewhere, but you know.
1: So that's that's a good um so models. Um when I think of your knives I do. I think of a lot of very, very pointy, I think of daggers and I think of a good amount of symmetry. Um, let's talk a little bit about your, your designs, um, and, and sort of how they, um, the materials you use and, and how the process is that you do design new models.
0: Well, I'm probably well known, most known for the ice pick and the D and D, um, The Fantail was my first overall design, and I actually stole that one, sort of. A guy named David Brightwell, I believe, was his name. Um, Brightwell or Broadwell? There's one of each, and I can't remember which one. He had this really trippy-looking dagger, and it was a dagger uh, sheath knife. It had maybe 50 pins in the handles. I mean, it it looked really kind of neat, but it was overboard on the pins and um so i kind of shrunk the blade down and turned it into an auto and uh i built the first one of what's called the fantail dnd and uh dnd stands for down and dirty for those who don't know and uh so i brought it to the 92 eugene show and there were some postal guys that uh, i knew that were Uh, one was a postmaster and the other one was actually his boss and they were into autos. And so they ordered 10 and at the time I was doing them for 250 bucks a piece. Holy moly. Yeah. But these things had truck springs in them, man. They were so fast. (laughs) Scary. Oh, they were, oh, it was amazing.
2: (laughs) That was was actually something I wanted to ask you was what's the hardest firing, uh, auto you've made or have experienced. Fantail D and D. There, uh, there you go. The one that I built. Yeah. Well, in I need to
0: get my like I open. say, uh, you take a basically back then we you you were stuck with choices as far as kick springs goes. There was nobody making any stainless springs. They were just uh, um, high uh, high carbon springs. And so if you put it all inside of a stainless chassis and titanium, the spring would rust. Uh, if you didn't pull it out and get it dry. So we built our own springs. They were built out of ATS. Um, and we first started building them, you know, build a few knives and build springs for all of them. So we heat treat maybe 10 or 15 springs at a time. And then my brother, Sean Vallotton, um got the bright idea of averaging our springs out and making 50 at a time, which, as far as I'm concerned, made a hell of a lot of sense. Um, because the spring treatment is you cut and build and bend, then you put it into the heat treat and that's pretty close back then. It was a little Paragon. So it was a two hour time frame for the first heat treat, bring it up to critical, let it air quench. And then you pulled it out of the package, cleaned it up a little bit, get some of the scale off, fit it a little better. You can't straighten it out. It'll still snap. Um, and then put it back in the foil pouch and do it at 900 for, two hours twice and it would bring it down to between 43 and 45. So it would make a, you know, on the Rockwell scale, you'd end up with 43 or 45 and then you'd have to thin it up a little bit more and then tune it for each piece. But back then I, I, I made them really fast. I mean, you're talking about a five inch blade exceeding 180 to 190 miles an hour. If you put it through a, um, a chronograph, which a friend of mine did, it's the only reason I know the numbers. Um, And an interesting little thing I brought the first one over to show My mom and she was in her back Office and I went to show It to her and it went off by itself I thought oh crap so I Walked away from her and I turned away And I locked the knife and I opened My palm and the damn thing took off Oh boy when it took off it went over the top Of my head and I chased it When it finally stopped My mom was working the mouse with her Right hand and it was blade tipped down in her Arm Ooh. Yeah. God. Ooh. <laughs> yeah. I didn't even get in trouble for stabbing my mom. It was pretty weird. <laughs> <laughs> all part of the process.
1: It's all yeah. part of the process. Yeah,
0: just Yeah. Way. So that's when we started learning to make those sears you were asking about earlier, right. making them uh, a lot cleaner and a little more purified. The other thing was we were trying to finish making these knives work before we ever finished them. Um so one of the things I brought to the table when my dad and brother and I were all in the shop together is I'd finish the knife and then I'd make it work um, because we'd still have 60 grit grind lines and dust and dirt going all in them and everything. And we'd spend days trying to make the damn things work. So I finally, one afternoon, I, in fact, it was that really high end Sidewinder 2 I was talking about, did all the Pearl, did all the Damascus, uh, Daryl Meyer, Damascus, no less, um, Fluted Pearl You know, went crazy The four liners in the thing One mm-hmm. liner holds a function The other liner holds the, the pickup bar And uh, showed my brother And he looked at it And he said, does it work? And I said, nope And he handed it back to me He says, you've lost your mind <laughs> And I walked away And 20 minutes later I brought it back over And I said, it works now he Damn. says, you're kidding me But uh, Yeah, that's uh, It's an interesting uh, interesting evolution of how to learn to do things and do things better and better and better. Right. But, Speaking uh, yeah,
2: materials, the materials, um, you were saying out like you were using, um, which, what kind of Damascus was it? Daryl, Meyer. Daryl Meyer, ever heard Daryl was Meyer. Daryl Meyer. Uh, maybe it's possible. He's
0: kind of considered the King of Damascus in the U S early on. If you've ever oh, yeah. seen, uh, George Bush is standing there and he's receiving a big, beautiful Bowie with, uh, a mosaic blade it's uh the american flag so we're talking and there's a, a gentleman world. standing there with the beard and a, yeah that's yeah, Daryl I've meyer. Seen that. okay
1: i've seen yep. that picture the american flag damascus yep and that's
0: oh, Daryl okay.
2: meyer
0: Huh? wow he's still around i don't know if he's making anymore but he's still around
2: or for so your materials i know how you like to use a lot of uh mammoth tooth and blued steel yeah that's definitely like a valentine like staple it is. It's, well, you know uh, I'm still it's doing developed. it today.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm still doing it today. Um, so uh, a gentleman out of West Orange, New Jersey, um, got me a block of mammoth molar and wanted me to use it. And at the time, all I, I, I had no clue what to do with this stuff. So I actually cut it and mounted it on a piece of titanium because you have to have some kind of matrix underneath to hold it together. And that didn't work. So I tried vulcanized paper. And before I walked out of the shop, um, I cleaned the things off. I would managed to drop them in the water uh, by the grinder, of course, the grinder bucket. So I dried them off, thought I got them dried dried off enough good, put them down next to the knife, came in the next day. And the vulcanized paper had shrunk and turned that molar into so much Popcorn. It it literally, as it shrunk, it folded up away from the molar and just opened that molar wide open. Hmm. So at the time, oh. I decided I don't want to use this stuff. Yeah. This stuff yeah. sucks. Yeah, it sounds like the worst material to use to work with. Yep.
2: Yeah. And then another I've guy. i tried it
0: twice. i have never finished it though. <laughs> um, <laughs> well, if you need some help, let me know. I um, uh, quit at this point. Now I have a
3: CNC. <laughs> <laughs> This is before the CNC.
0: <laughs> oh yeah. Um, so another gentleman, uh, he was also out of New York originally He ended up in uh, Louisiana. Um, he met a guy named Ron Burke and Ron Burke was cutting slabs for liners. So I didn't have to get a block. I get flat slabs. And then I found thin G 10, 30, 30 thousands to 40 thousands G 10. And so we'd rough both sides up and, uh, tried that the first time. And that was the that was the answer. It, it would stick to the G10. Um, you had to use the right glue. You couldn't use super glue. Super glue don't like it. It 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 doesn't seems to flow clean enough. It'll get into a soft spot on the molder, and then it'll all run to the soft spot. So the whole thing won't get glued. So you have got to use a, a varathane glue, which nowadays would be Gorilla Glue or uh, Elmer's does a varathane glue as well. So we finally got those to stuck to stick together, and somebody had told me about bluing. And at the time I was using a rub on paste for bluing and that was okay. It wasn't quite producing what we were looking for. And somebody turned me on to Niter blue, uh, Niter bluing salts, uh, from Brownells. And, um, so we started playing with that. And once I got that dialed in a bit, it had just exploded. I was building knife after knife, after knife, of molar and blued steel and, um, Most of the steel was coming from Chad Nichols. Uh, I was getting some from Bob Eggerling, Mike Norris, a little bit here and there, not too much from Mike. Uh, We were using uh, mosaic panels for bolsters. Um, And at the time, Chad was producing some really interesting patterns. And he would make them thick enough for me where nobody else wanted to make them thicker. I needed them closer to 160 and everybody wanted to do them at one eighth. And then uh, the molar... Uh, and that went together, and then the colors came in, and then it just it just got lost. Um, I've got big knives with that crazy stuff all over it. Uh, as a matter of fact, I have a 15-and-a-half or 16-inch piece that I did for a gentleman. Um, it's a twist Damascus uh, blade, matching bolsters. The button is a Damascus cradle with a silver skull mounted in it. But the handles are five and a half inches long by one and three eighths wide at their widest point. Solid molar. Damn. Oh, it's beautiful! It's just—it was hard to get a set that big. I had to custom order them. Yeah, I would. Uh, but, I would imagine. Yeah, it's—it's it's hard to get stuff that big. I mean, I built thirty-five inch switchblades, but overall it's hard length. to f- overall length opened it opened up tip yeah. to tail. Uh, I got a compliment one time. It's been many, many years. It was at the blade show. Uh, this gentleman is also gone. Um, and then a guy named Joe Kios, um, a really, uh, nice hearted guy. Uh, I never got to really meet and talk with him much, but I delivered a knife to, uh, uh, Ray Gosh, uh, one of my customers, uh, um, I'll remember his name sooner or later. Anyway, I delivered this big, giant coffin dagger, 35 inches, all micarta handles, uh, solid micarta handles, as a matter of fact, and uh, satin finished blade, and I delivered it. It was 1600 bucks, and dropped it off and walked away. And apparently Joe was either sitting there or was near me and walked over to Ray, and he said, hey, can I see that giant-ass crazy switchblade? And Ray said, sure. So he handed it to him. Joe kicked it up with the tip right at the bridge of his nose and the tail facing away, looked up in the light and he said, that is the straightest 18 inch grind I have ever seen. Mm. And I thought, you know, I'd love to have met that guy. Yeah, right. <laughs> I never got to meet Joe. He, he passed away just a few years later. Um, but uh you know the the back the backdoor compliments that you that you hear about years later are just the ones that probably make you crazy. But uh, yeah, thirty five inches. We've got one on the table we're working on. Have been actually for a couple of years. We were supposed to bring it to this year's blade show, but we know how that worked out. Yeah, is it a big we'll one or what? It's a thirty five inch coffin dagger. Mm. Um, we got to redo the blade. We're gonna we're gonna build another blade for it. But she's got titanium front bolsters ironwood handles about a one inch diameter titanium button, a one inch di- uh, wide titanium spacer, and then another wooden ironwood handle and then a titanium rear bolster. Wow. Um, I like it. Yeah. It's I first team we ever built. We showed up to that show where I met Judy Gottage and made an idiot of myself. And, uh, Every time it's back then it was in that little room. Well, little room, the big room there at the hotel. Uh, you got, went up the escalators, walked through Benchmade, made spider co all those guys. And then once you got through there, you walked into the back building where all the customs and, um, and all that stuff was going on. And uh, every time the table, you know, the traffic would ebb and flow. And when it would flow out, we'd pick the thing up and fire it a few times and then it'd flow right back to the table. So it it grabbed a lot of attention, and um, this gentleman walked up, picked it up, was looking at it, and he turned it away and fired it. Well, the blade went down, and when it came up and locked in, it smacked him in the forehead with the backside of the blade, and it put a red ridge across his eyeball, between his eyes, around his nose, and brought tears to his eyes, and he was handing me back the knife. It didn't cut him. But it hit him hard enough to sound like a coconut hitting concrete. Oof! Hmm. Yeah.
1: You know I'm that's that's w- that's a that's a great blade show story. That's like one oh, of those yeah, you know who
2: fires an auto and then hits himself in the forehead. Uh, somebody who yeah, does well, him, very you know. <laughs> Yeah, he didn't even ask to fire it. So. It's like, yeah, hey, I'm just gonna pick this up and mess with he it. He
0: did. He did. Yep. That's uh, that's when I met Ralph here. Same show. Hmm.
1: That's 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 pretty great, actually.
0: No, that's, yeah, uh, no, that was hilarious.
3: So after the D and D's and then the chameleons, I see your next semi-production project seemed to be the the Soldiers of
0: Fortune series. Oh yeah, yeah. From uh, technically ninety one, on, but uh, yeah, to ninety ninety two, literally pretty solid till year two thousand. Um, the first year was only thirty knives. Um, the, there's a little more information on the backside of that. We built knives for Almar. Um, we built a limited run of 30 knives, uh, for Almar. They were the Almar seer. They were all custom built. They were uh, single action with safeties, um, all polished. I mean, these things were, and I don't think we charged, but 350 bucks a piece back then for them, but they were forward bolsters, all black micarta, all polished titanium liners, Uh, stainless steel blades, all ATS 34. And we built 30 of those for Al. Uh, And we did one special one for him actually resurfaced last year. I saw it again last year. I don't know where it had been for all those years, but the last year was the first time I'd seen it in 30 plus years. And so dad got the bright idea of let's do a soldier of fortune show and we'll take a soldier of fortune knife. So we did 30 of these and it was a beautiful show, but we, were, we weren't we were really selling much. It was really slow. And dad ran into this guy. Next thing you know, they're talking and whispering to each other. Next thing you know, the table's empty. He took every one of them that was left. I think there was still 20 left. And so that was the launch of our Soldier of Fortune. So the next year, we did 50 base. Um, and these were just beat blasted knives back then. Uh, beat blasted, forward bolstered, micarta handles, same motif as the Almar Seer, but um, different finish. Numbered them all. Leobitam Soldier Fortune 91 or 92. I think it's 92. And um, so we built 50 that year. My brother and my dad and I. Then the next year, my brother and I and my dad built uh, that does include three prototypes, by the way. <laughs> so we built 50 the next year, and then we did 10 officers' models. So we had 50 base models and 10 officers' models and three prototypes. So it was 63 knives that year. Then the next year, um, we introduced the general's models. So we had five of those. So it'd be 50 base, 10 officers' models, five general's models. And the general's models were back then ivory um, and stainless, all polished. Oh, man. The officer's model became satin finished instead of polished and then the 50 base plus the three prototypes. And then we did that all the way up until year 2000. Hmm. Three months worth of work between three of us. Uh, I got to where I could grind 70 blades in three days for a primary to 220 heat treat, and then three days to clean them up to finish. So give or take seven or eight days for 70 blades. I like can't do that anymore. Yeah, that's like, uh, <laughs> holy, holy. Uh,
3: no, I can't do I, I've done something similar, but it was a two inch chisel ground knife, so. Can't uh, really it's a marathon. Prepare. It's brutal. <laughs> it, yeah, yeah. Even though yeah. it was that I that sucked. I was like, never again. I did like 110 in, in like two shifts in two days, two really yeah. long shifts. They were chisel ground two inches long, but God, I hated myself for about a week after.
0: Yep, your eyes start to cross.
3: <laughs> your eyes start to crawl, your hands start to stiffen up, like everything. Yep.
0: Knees shake. Oh yeah. Yeah.
3: You got uh, the underboot sweats from the built-in work rest.
0: Yeah, I was doing uh I was doing the sidewinders and I ground maybe 40 of them. Uh, I started really early. We were running a little behind. And I got on maybe 40, 40 or 30 or 39 or 41, somewhere around in there. And I got about three quarters of the way done with the blade and I screwed something up and I got mad and I just ground that puppy right in half. <laughs> I've
3: done that. I think everyone <laughs> I've ever talked to has done that. <laughs> I messed up a folder pretty much 80% done and then something happened and, and the lockup went from 20% to 80%. And I could have probably fixed it with some tricks, but I got so mad for something. I just went to the grinder fully assembled and just ground it entirely into into nothing in the, essentially it's in a backspace yep. yeah into a backspacer pretty
1: much i mean sometimes yeah. you get angry sometimes you just you know you take it out man that's, that's well how it goes. you
0: know it beats throwing stuff <laughs> well see there you go my dad was good at throwing stuff so was my brother for that matter if you throw uh,
3: it, it just angers you because then you're like, oh, I could fix it, but it's dinged up, so it takes more work to fix it. If you just grind it to dust, like, you just move on.
0: Yeah, there you it's go. Out of,
3: no, yeah. It's out of your eyesight. It's gone.
0: Yeah, we were in the original shop, which was dad, on Dad's property, and um, Sean was working in the grinding room, and he come out. And when Sean was having a bad day, it was he was having a bad day. He was uh, a bit manic-depressive. And so when you came in, you wanted to look at Sean to figure out what kind of day you were going to have. <laughs> but uh, he come out of that grinding room was so mad. I mean, just he, he was blood red. His eyes were bulging. He was just crazy pissed. And he threw this liner and it hit the ground. And that was the only sound it made. And then it disappeared. And about eight years later, we moved out of that shop and moved into another shop in town that we were all sharing. And in the process of tearing all that stuff down and getting it all unplugged and moved and everything, there's this fan sitting up about eight feet above the ground, and it was drawing heat off of the flue pipe from the wood burner stove we were using to heat the place. And I reached up and tipped that up, and that liner had gotten onto one of those oh blades God. and slid out. And it fell on me, and I'm looking at it, and I'm looking at my dad as, you know that liner, Sean Lost? <laughs> Do you remember that? Like, I just found that. Oh it's man. still here. It's still haunting yep. us. We did it we did an SOF one year and a knife absolutely just flat disappeared. Oof. I mean, a finished, ready to go piece. And we moved out of Sutherland and moved back over to my dad's property in a brand new shop. And we were in the brand new shop for about a year. And that knife just materialized out of mm-hmm. nowhere. I don't know where it came from. I don't know how it got where it got. It was just in a in a in a cabinet and we'd emptied that cabinet been through it so we entitled that one mia oh there you go yeah Yeah. it took us about five minutes to sell it (laughs) i would yeah i would imagine yeah people are like oh my god it had original numbers and everything still on it we had we just added mia to the blade Hmm, it's it's still around i saw it a couple years back too
1: all right that's gonna do it for part one of the rainy Valadin interview thanks so much everybody for tuning in to another episode of the Bladeology podcast we will be back next week with part two from rainy stay tuned and as always wear your safety glasses tuck in those detent tracks and thank a knife maker